0: Welcome back to the University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wilcox, Communications Generalist here at U of M Extension. In this episode, we're talking about soil carbon measurements. We have three panelists here with us today. Can you each give us a quick introduction?
1: Hi, I'm Anna Cates. I'm the Extension Soil Health Specialist
2: for University of Minnesota.
3: Hi, I'm Jess Guconect. I'm a faculty in the Department of Soil, Water, and Climate at the University of Minnesota.
2: And I'm Greg Sanford. I'm a research scientist in the Department of Plant and Agroecosystem Sciences at the
0: University of Wisconsin-Madison. Why is carbon in the soil being considered as a credit in the global carbon cycle?
3: The idea behind considering carbon as a credit is, is the idea that if we can kind of grow more plants or, or kind of shift the carbon balance that we're pulling in more carbon than we're releasing, which is what a lot of farmers are doing with regenerative and continuous living cover practices that we can pull some of a little bit of the extra CO2 from the atmosphere that we have, you know, kind of abundantly emitted as a society. And so the credit part of this is that we should be paying farmers for their good work to do this.
2: Yeah, I think a key piece of that, Jessica's comment is, um, you know, all of the carbon in the plants around us, crops, trees, grasses, etc. is built through photosynthesis. So it starts off as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, as those plants build their above ground and below ground structures, their roots and their leaves and their stems, etc. That carbon is transformed into um, a physical Carbon that we can then move around through agricultural management. And the idea would be that, you know, uh, Google or um, General Mills or another company might have areas in their supply chain where they can't um, necessarily go carbon neutral, but maybe they could pay a farmer who is able to take that carbon out of the atmosphere and lock it into their soils over some um, long period of time. And that carbon then that the farmer is locking into their soils can be traded on a market um, financially. The farmer is essentially being paid for the service they're doing for another company.
3: Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you brought up the example of a food company because like, you could argue that that company, if they're kind of targeting the, the credits toward products that they're sourcing – they can kind of count that toward lowering their company's emissions. Um, and I think different companies tackle this in different ways. They either look at it as an indirect offset or they're looking at it, yeah, as part of their own sourcing of of um, materials or food or goods.
2: Sure, and actually Organic Valley, I know, uses the language of insetting a lot, that the uh, um, rather than trading credits, you know, they're, they're cooperative, they're farmers, um, the practices that they're doing um, that have the potential to sequester carbon or, or build carbon in the soils can then be inset into the milk product or cheese product and lower the carbon footprint of that product.
0: What practices, uh, change soil carbon?
2: So the, um, there's several, you know, anytime we monkey, if you will, with the soil system, we have the potential to shift or change carbon. Um, there's a lot of what we call natural climate solutions that we think, Um, could improve our carbon resources in the soil, and they all tend to kind of coalesce around reducing the amount of tillage um, or soil disturbance, increasing the amount of living cover, um, whether that's through cover cropping or growing perennials, reintegration of Crop and livestock systems. So um, we have a lot of systems in our part of the world where crops are grown in the absence of livestock, and so there's um, several kind of nutrient management pieces to that that actually impact kind of the the uh, greenhouse gas footprint and and the soil carbon uh, scheme, and then you know there's a lot of discussion also about diversification, diversification, just that different plants fill different ecological niches. And if we can have niche complementarity, um, and from, from an agricultural system, one way to think about that is this common coupling of grain crops with forage crops or grain crops with legumes, you know, that grain crops produce a lot of biomass, they produce a lot of energy, legumes produce a lot of protein. So they, they give things back to the farmers, but from a, Biogeochemical standpoint, things like corn can produce a lot of above-ground carbon, but they need nitrogen, whereas things like alfalfa can produce nitrogen through fixation and then put a lot of their carbon below ground. So there's ways that plants working together can also improve soil carbon resources, um, theoretically, anyways.
1: Yeah, I was gonna point out that a lot of the practices you bring up are mimicking the practices that built soil carbon in the first place, which is, you know, mixed perennial polycultures like grassland um, forest soils also built a lot of carbon over time, although less than grassland soils. And so some of the most promising things for uh, changing the carbon content of soil is actually to move back to those systems or to restore wetlands, they actually have a, a really high potential uh, carbon increase relative to changes in annual cropping systems. Because unfortunately, we didn't get carbon in the soils in the first place by rotating corn and soybeans and uh, feeding it to animals. Uh, so we, when we mimic those practices that brought carbon into the soils in the first place, we tend to see more success in carbon increases, but it's
2: always slow. You know, to get to Anna's point, we, we often talk about ecological intensification or this idea of bringing those ecological or kind of historical landscapes or biomes, the functionality of those back into our agricultural systems as much as possible, trying to mimic the prairies if we can, or in some ways, mimicking even forests with agroforestry or silvopasture, those types of things.
3: And when we're thinking about how do we do this in the future, like some of the key features of those, like native prairies, um, you know, where that there was continuous cover, they were perennial. Um, a lot of them were deeply rooted, and so when we look to perennial species now, like um, per, you know, diverse prairies or switchgrass or some other kind of long-standing perennials that are now on landscapes agriculturally, like the the depth of rooting and some of those things are what are influencing, starting to influence carbon.
0: What makes um, soil carbon complicated to measure?
3: I just spoke to one of those things. <laughs> the, the all of these different factors. You know, is it the amount of the plant growing? Is it the depth of roots? Is it the diversity of species? Greg actually alluded to this earlier too when we were first describing why carbon is a credit because it starts with photosynthesis and carbon moving into a plant and how does it move through the plant and into the soil system? Every species might have slightly different ways of doing this. You know, is that plant re-respiring, re-breathing the CO2 back into the atmosphere quickly through its roots? Some species do that. Some species are good at fueling microbes that'll recycle and build the soil and soil carbon and make it more permanent. Um, Some soils and some landscape positions are better at holding carbon than others. So there are just so many facets to how plants grow and how they cycle carbon and the soil structure and soil biology is that's processing the carbon that we want to keep in the soil like these are such like diverse intricate systems that that um getting a handle on it is really tricky and it it even goes beyond that there are some threads of evidence that you know these decades of of disturbing soil through our current agricultural practices actually might make it harder to start storing carbon again. Like, have we altered the, have we altered these soils to the extent that they don't even store carbon to the same degree? Another kind of existential threat to understanding this is that there's some evidence that the best we can do is tread water because global warming might mean that we're kind of naturally losing carbon. (laughs) like I saw a big synthesis paper on this a couple of years ago that like our whole system is changing in the context of trying to understand how carbon is stored.
2: Just like basic uh, complexity from an analytical standpoint to assessing carbon. So kind of the gold standard method that we have right now for estimating soil organic carbon is dry combustion of soil samples. Um, And that dry combustion estimates total carbon from a soil And so kind of one of the first things that we have to deal with is, are we sure that all the carbon in the soil is organic carbon? That is, it came from plants and photosynthesis originally, or do we have some carbonates in the soil? There's lots of soils that have carbonates in them, um, which are basically carbon in rock form that came from ancient seabeds or wherever the soil's kind of parent material comes from. So first we have to sort that out. So that requires typically, analysis of soils with and without an acid treatment to get at you know whether or not it's organic carbon or total carbon and that total carbon has inorganics in it. So we have to pull those inorganics out. And then depending on kind of the histor historical um, management of those soils or the, the kind of pre-agricultural biomes. We may have a lot of background carbon to deal with. So Anna talked about wetlands. You know, huge swaths of the Midwest used to be prairie potholes or wetlands, and they've been drained. Huge chunks of the Midwest used to be um, just tall grass prairie. You know, many of the soils around where I met in southern Wisconsin, where you at you're at in Minnesota. And so there's a lot of native carbon. And what that means is that, If you couple that like big pool of native carbon and then the variability that's inherent in the soils you end up with a really huge amount of noise in the data and so that big amount of noise makes tiny changes that we're making year to year we planted a cover crop we didn't till we spread some manure it makes it really really tricky to pick out a signal if you will or like some sort of change amid that uh, swirling noise in, in the data those are two things but then So what jessica was saying a lot of our agricultural management begins to change the soil properties and one big property that it changes is bulk density or how compact the soil is Um, certain systems can make soils less compact but other systems can make them more compact and so if we're tracking carbon over time you know it's not just is it got inorganic carbon in it and how big is the background pool but then it is you know have our systems changed the density of the soil. And if they have, we have to correct for that. So there are several pieces that have to come together to get an accurate estimate of carbon. And that's at one time point to actually know whether or not anything that we're doing is building carbon. We have to then track that carbon over several years, several years, usually five would be a minimum depending on kind of where you're starting, but you know, decadal measurements are typically kind of what we would really be pushing for
1: i just add one summary comment to that, which is that when we talk about carbon in the soil, we tend to think of it as a mass, a static uh, body of matter, but actually it's always transforming. It's changing from residue to microbial bodies, to gaseous form, to other forms of organic material. So that just makes it inherently complicated. We're taking a snapshot of something in process of transformation.
3: Yeah. And, and I think Going back to, you know, some of the goals in the context that we're discussing in terms of credits and how do we understand carbon in order to give credits, like, yeah, that temporal aspect that Anna just spoke to, the time course, and even when we put carbon in the soil, is it even staying in the soil, and how long is it staying in the soil for, is a whole other kind of series of questions.
2: That's why the, the term sequestration is so problematic because sequestration by definition suggests that you're taking something and locking it away, you know, a monk in his cell or whatever it is, you know, like something's never coming out and um, that simply isn't the way the soils work. They're constantly changing their dynamic and then you have this whole overarching changing climate which took away any potential for um, kind of equilibrium. So you've got a changing climate coupled with a dynamic soil system. Um, things get complicated really quickly.
3: I think the, the closest we get is like in trees, right? Like a tree trunk is locking in carbon, but even that you could burn it or it could decompose if that tree dies.
2: There's there's actually discussion of sequestering carbon by returning to using wood as a building material in cities, basically growing the, the carbon and then sticking it in buildings and
0: what do you think the ideal, or is there an ideal carbon measurement scheme? What would it look like?
2: Yeah, I don't I don't know if there is an ideal. I think that a good carbon measurement scheme is going to need to hybridize empirical measurements of carbon with models, um, landscape models. And um, just to clarify that, that, the carbon markets that are out there now are kind of a mixture of those. Some rely... Um, heavily on modeling tools, you basically plug in what it is you're doing or how you're changing what you're doing. And it turns out some sort of carbon credit. Um, there are other crediting groups that are, are using that modeling, but ground truthing it with an empirical actual estimate of carbon, some change in carbon. And I think that's the direction that things should be going. I mean, from from a, from a a the standpoint of how one would most accurately measure carbon, there's some key things that have to Happen, right? We've got to have empirical baseline data for any type of measurement that we're taking. And that needs to include organic carbon and it needs to include the mass of soil. And that soil carbon needs to be tracked over time because everything that we've talked about now, uh, uh, kind of this afternoon, has gotten to that point that things are dynamic and changing. We do need to make those corrections for changes in soil mass, but we also need to be sampling deep. And this gets a little bit to what Jessica is saying that or has said that like most of the protocols stop at 30 centimeters. And um, the reason for that is because most of the action, if you will, is happening in those top 30 centimeters. That's where most of our cropping systems, um, rooting depths are, you know, like most of the root biomass is in that top 30 centimeters. Our tillage doesn't go deeper than that. And so that's the area of the soil that we can really manipulate, but the climate is changing and things are happening below that 30 centimeters. And there's a lot of data, that has shown that you know if we ignore those deeper depths we're not getting a full picture and so the empirical assessment piece I think is critical and it needs to be done um, pretty comprehensively but there's no way that you can do that these deep sampling over decades um, on every field that every farmer wants to enroll in a carbon credit and so those empirical assessments need to be coupled with robust models that can then take um, kind of data that's come out of s- specific sites in a region and extrapolate that to broader landscapes. Mm-hmm. The idea being then that, you know, like if, if you paid a farmer X amount of dollars per ton for a carbon credit and they spent five years in a changed practice, you would go back after that five years and ground truth either with that empirical sampling or with your model, which been which has been calibrated regionally.
3: Yeah, and, and to... Riff off of this a little bit. I think you mostly spoke to what I had in mind for kind of the best scheme, but just to almost to go back to basics and take this like soil for soil forming factors into account. So you talked about time. And so the five soil forming factors are, you know, topography, parent material, climate time and biology like the plant or microbial community and so time climate like understanding different either temporal variation in climate or different you know ecosystems geographical areas the parent material this got a, a, like inorganic organic or what's the rest of the mineralogy that's underlying the carbon that we want to store like what's the you know matrix ma- matrix and infrastructure I think topography is an interesting one too because In different landscape positions, like at the top of a hill or a bottom of a hill or a wetland, you know, we've talked about all of those things, but the way that soil moves or changes or forms, and therefore the carbon within that can change too. And of course, you know, we've spent half our time talking about the biology and the plants. So I think a structure that kind of hits all the soil forming factors in a scheme would be more informative. But I mean, and that's really just the empirical measurements. Like there's a whole world that we haven't talked about a whole lot in, in carbon modeling.
2: You know, a huge part of what you're saying is going to have to be built into those models. There's going to have to be this iterative, uh, empirical assessment, model validation, empirical assessment, model validation, simply because those things are so complex and there's emergent properties to them. And, um,
0: What research are you excited about to address some of these challenges?
1: Well, a lot of it has to take place over the long term. So I'm excited about where we do have long term cropping systems trials in place in both of our states and across the nation. I feel like those can offer us a lot. I'm excited about some work that I'm doing up in Northwest Minnesota, looking at the effect of installing drainage on organic carbon, because I think the changing hydrology of the Midwest, uh, both with artificial drainage and with changing climatic patterns, could have a big impact on soil carbon. So I'm also really excited about research that looks at the effect of any kind of uh, climatic patterns on carbon changes in the short and long term. Preferably over the long term for every all the reasons we've discussed so far.
2: I concur 100% with Anna as somebody who manages one of the long-term experiments here in the um, southern Wisconsin, north central states area. You know, I think a, a lot of people, when they set out to, to to build these cropping systems experiments, didn't envision them necessarily lasting 30, 40, 50 years. And the older they get now, the more valuable they become because they provide us uh these long-term data sets on what's actually happening in the soil um which are truly invaluable and if if those experiments are set up well they provide the opportunity to do some manipulative work so you know there's some work that anna and i are actually working on where we're doing some manipulation of some of these long-term systems to see what the key um, drivers of of carbon change Um, in our experience we've seen uh, loss of total carbon over the last 30 years even in forage systems and i think something that's a little bit terrifying that gets to a comment jessica made earlier is that a lot of that loss is happening in really deep soils so soils that are kind of beyond the reach of most of our agricultural management so it feels like there's a climate signal happening there and so i'm excited about research to try and figure out just where that carbon is coming from and if there's um, anything that we can do to to stabilize those deep stocks or potentially even rebuild them and then a- another project that anna and i are working on which um, is exciting is is this coupling of the long-term experiments in wisconsin and minnesota and iowa um, in a um, kind of scientist farmer collaborative that we're calling Socknet, where we've got um, long-term monitoring sites and on-farm experiments set up in the three states to track in real time over the next decade Kind of what happens when farmers make some of these ecological intensification changes, you know, reducing tillage, adding cover crops, manure. Um, It's a big project regionally, and it's a slow project because it's going to take a decade, but I think it's pretty uh, critical for the questions that lie ahead.
3: Another couple of areas that I've been working on that I think are interesting and important are are actually uh, keeping a foot in the ecology world. is one idea I'm I'm taking part in a large long-term climate change experiment in a northern northern Minnesota boreal peatland and carbon there also is the big theme because northern like we were you know we've been talking a lot about draining peatland you know draining wetlands or draining peatlands like if you look at global emissions maps you know, northern Minnesota, southern Canada, where we're draining, where we, we now, because of climate change, have a long enough growing season to actually grow something. We're draining peatlands to grow crops, and that could be leading to huge emission losses. And so projects like this spruce experiment in a northern, you know, in a southern boreal peatland, where we're watching just how is, how is, you know, a baseline in a natural ecosystem, how is warming leading to carbon loss, I think will be informative. Another area that I've focused a lot on is is the more mechanistic tracing of carbon so you know if we spike in like labeled carbon and trace it through the system can we start to understand where it's going you know with different practices or different situations can we understand where that carbon is going and how it's being stored versus you know re-respired out to the atmosphere the pie in the sky would be, you know, mechanistic step studies that are kind of wisely coupled with long-term, um, monitoring.
2: I think that the work that both of you are doing, you know, whether it's the tile drainage of, of, uh, inundated soils or the conversion of peatlands, I mean, there's a lot of similarities in that, and that's, I think, huge, super valuable simply because those soils, whether they're inundated agriculture, agricultural soils, inundated prairie lands or these peat lands have been huge reservoirs of carbon for so long, the idea that all of a sudden they're becoming aerobic or being cultivated um, is going to be a major loss, presumably a major loss of carbon.
3: There's this big potential for state changes too. Like one of the things that's happening at this spruce experiment is that as a water table goes down, you know, you have some species, like some of the shrubs are winning and some of the sphagnum moss is losing. And so you have these whole like ecosystem state changes. What are the implications of carbon? I think it are really important to understand.
0: Is Minnesota uniquely positioned in any way to contribute to solving these issues?
3: So the focus
1: on building carbon has really built awareness and interest and energy for practices that are good for other reasons. So as we think about whether Minnesota farmers can build soil carbon, uh, you know, a lot of our research suggests that we could be pretty skeptical of how much carbon they can build in annual row crop systems, really with or without tillage uh, or with different tillage practices. But if they're looking at reduced till systems with cover crops, which certain markets want to pay them for because of the proposed carbon benefits, we could see benefits for uh, nutrient sequestration on the land and in the plants instead of flowing into waterways. And we could see benefits in terms of reduced flooding, and we could see benefits in terms of better water holding capacity on farms. When we think about measuring soil carbon and what Minnesota farmers stand to gain from it, I think in a way what they really stand to gain is more resources poured into technical assistance for practices that could be beneficial for other reasons. Uh, And if we see a little boost in soil carbon and they're able to get a $5 an acre gravy payment for building soil carbon on top of perhaps a soil and water district payment for water quality benefits, then those could be uh, a nice win-win.
3: Another thing we have to gain, it might sound a touch more symbolic, but I think it's important is, is that we're all talking about this more. One of the climate scientists likes to say that the most important thing we can do for climate change is to talk about climate change. And I think this is really, especially a lot of the trickiness and complexity and, and, struggle with talking about carbon is really leading a lot of us to articulate these processes better, but it's also leading to like how many more conversations, like open, not political conversations have I had with farmers about climate change? You know, it's totally shifted the conversation That we're all kind of talking about a lot of these big issues in a lot more holistic and a lot better ways than we used to, and which is going to lead everyone to think about how how are we treating the land and what does it mean to be sustainable um, in the future. So I I think that's actually a really exciting piece of this.
1: I agree, Jess. That's a great point that we're building awareness of these practices and of what's happening in the soil generally.
2: I don't have any brand ideas other than if farmers are interested in participating in research. We're about to enroll year two SOCnet in Minnesota. So if you or any farmers you know are interested, reach out to Anna.
3: Another shameless plug that I would make is that a really useful tool for farmers has just come out. The Minnesota Farmers Union has just put out a guide to carbon markets and they did a tremendous amount of due diligence. Like they took contracts and had their lawyers look at them. And I've seen it recently and it's just it's fantastic.
0: All right. That about does it for this episode of the Nutrient Management Podcast. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, or AFREC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening.